Sometimes a beer won't cut it. Neither will a bike ride or a lavender and vanilla bubble bath or an afternoon off. When the pressure gets to be too much, it's time for a great escape. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and coming up on this Selected Shorts, stories about fleeing the scene. Don't you run off. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Listen, I get it. You follow the news, talk to friends and relatives, even sit quietly and try to make sense of it all. I don't need to remind you of, say, the maddening flow of information you face on a daily basis, or the difficulties that we're confronting as a species. No, I'm guessing you need what all of us need from time to time, an escape from it all. Not just lunch in the park or a three-hour break from Twitter if you haven't been so corrupted by social media that you can actually force yourself to look away for that long. I mean a genuine strategy for escape. A real chance to cut ties with the old life, at least for a brief span of time, and feel something new appear in its place. In this episode of Selected Shorts, that's what we'll consider. Stories by three great fiction writers that contemplate a way out. One story suggests that escape comes in the form of starting over in a new location. Another story delivers that escape in deep space, with or without individual consent. And yet another story brings us that escape in the form of, what else, literature. And we'll hear a new piece of music composed specifically to accompany one of these stories. Our first author, Chicagoan Joe Mino, is the writer stumping for books themselves. Mino wins the award for sweetly contradictory hell-themed book titles, Tender as Hellfire, Demons in the Spring, and my favorite, Hairstyles of the Damned. Joe, I was going to write a book with that very same title, but you beat me to it. Oh well, I guess I'll have to call my book something truly original, maybe, I don't know, War and Peace. When Selected Shorts commissioned its very first anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys, the playful Mino is one of the authors to whom we reached out. Reading this piece, we have Joan Allen, a lifelong actor who has an impressive list of credits. She's been to Broadway four times, featured in films including Room and Nixon, and recently appeared in the HBO adaptation of Lisey's Story. Now, here's Joan Allen to perform Joe Mino's Books You Read. Books You Read. Books you read last year were all bad. (laughs) Are you getting older, or is the world just becoming less interesting? Books don't mean what they used to. You haven't found one you enjoyed since 2012 when you read A Wrinkle in Time. You borrowed it from a girl you were babysitting and loved it so much you ended up stealing it, even though you were way too old. You are embarrassed how much you still like fantasy and YA. Something in your heart has stopped growing. You become skinny now, in all the wrong places. You work in a bookstore, even though you don't enjoy reading. Nothing keeps you up late at night, turning page after page anymore. Even Murakami has become familiar. Your bookstore sells used books. You purposefully missort the authors you admire hoping to keep them a secret for as long as possible. When it's not busy, you magic marker out the best parts. The scene where Franny faints, beloved climbing out of the water, Scout finding the hidden objects inside the tree. Others you bury behind other books because of how the authors look in their photos. You imagine Philip Roth writing with his clothes off. It makes it somewhat easier to accept some of what he writes. You get bruises, but you don't know why. There are 17 of them. One looks like Sweden. Others look like countries you could never afford to visit. You always go to the movies alone. You want your eardrums to ring, your teeth to shake. You want to feel something, especially if it's not real. Your favorite is Star Wars. There are approximately 96 of them now. You watch them in the theater and then again at home. The louder and less interesting they are, the less you have to lose. By the end of the year, two people you know pass away suddenly. 
girl you went to high school with and one of your best friends, Franny. Franny gets hit on her bicycle while riding home from someone's apartment late at night. You keep texting her and texting her, but she doesn't answer, and so you know something is wrong. Later, someone puts up a ghost bike near the underpass where she was hit. You go by there and stare as if staring ever changed anything. You use a different name on your time card every week. Today, it is Josephine March. Last week, it was Catherine Earnshaw. Besides the bookstore, you are also an after-school tutor at a community center. You do not do this out of kindness. You do it because you have to perform community service for a DUI you got when you borrowed your dad's Subaru a few months before and got pulled over by the cops after having two and a half beers. It was around the time you got pulled over, two months after Franny died, that you began referring to yourself by fictional names. What does it mean when you cut yourself and it won't stop bleeding? Who were you shaving for, anyway? At the tutoring center, you help kids who have nowhere to go after school. Their faces are blank. You're not sure if they hate you or if they've just given up on learning. You attempt to answer their questions about homework, mostly history and math. When you're unsure, sometimes you just make it up. Abraham Lincoln was a ghost. The pyramids were built by aliens. Everything ends up becoming fiction. There is a boy there, Alessandro, who is 10, whom you may be getting little too attached to. When he comes to the tutoring center, he already has all of his homework done. He has dark hair and wears a blue winter coat that he refuses to ever take off. All he wants to do is look at the books. Most of them have been donated by corporate bookstores. He likes to look at the Encyclopedia of Animals, which a lot of the kids fight over. All Alessandro does is sit in the blue chair and flip through the animal book, memorizing odd and amazing facts. The length of a giant squid, the wingspan of an albatross, lifespan of a blue whale. You think if you were a few years older, you would try and adopt him, even though you are not sure if something like that is legal. And you worry what that says about you, the fact that you want to help someone you don't even know. Someone invites you to a party, but you say it's too cold. You haven't been feeling very sociable lately. You look at all the books on your bookshelves, but don't read any of them. Just organize them by color. Then again, by how many times you've read them. One day, Alessandro is browsing through the animal encyclopedia in the blue chair, and the next day the book is missing. You know this because another kid asks for the book, and when you go and kneel by the shelf, you see it's gone. You remember Alessandro reading it the day before. You remember the funny way he said goodbye, how he carried his backpack under his arm in an odd way. Alessandro stops showing up later that week. You go into the office and you look through the index cards where all the kids' contact information is, and you see that he only lives a few blocks away. Is nothing scary to you anymore? How can the world be totally upside down and so empty at the same time. One day after your shift at the bookstore, you call Margaret, a person you work with, and ask if she wants to help you commit a crime. It depends what kind of crime, she asks. A reverse robbery. Well, what's that? Where you steal something that was stolen. She says she doesn't want to get involved, but she will come watch you make a complete fool of yourself. You ask her to be the lookout, and she says she will, but only out of boredom. You check the index card, and you and Margaret ride by the boy's home. It is small, blue and gray, looks only like the idea of a house. A bicycle frame with no tires sits in the front yard. You and Margaret open the gate and walk up, peek through the windows and ring the doorbell. It is 1.30 in the afternoon, no one is at home, you knock, and then knock again. You search around, lift up the mat at the front door, check under an empty flower pot. There is a small silver key hidden on top of a side window ledge. You palm it and smile. Margaret, with her stiff red hair, only shakes her head. Inside is someone else's home. 
Inside it is cramped and full of life. You stand in the middle of it, imagining what it is like to live there. You find Alessandro's room down a hall. There are three small beds with lots of clothes and toys on the floor. You look underneath each bed, nothing. Under some laundry. A rabbit, as big as a cat, leaps out and scares you half to death. You see its open cage in the corner of the room. You keep on looking, ignoring the rabbit as it disappears under the bed. You peek through the side window and realize Margaret is gone. There's no one standing guard. You keep on searching. You are a hero, a protector of all books. The animal encyclopedia belongs to everyone. In the closet, there is a stack of overdue library books, some several years overdue. At the bottom of the stack, you find the animal encyclopedia. You pick it up and you open it. There are markings, drawings in it now. Some of the animals are now even speaking to each other. Some are crying. Some have been given strange thoughts. You realize Alessandro has turned the encyclopedia into a storybook. The leopards have fallen in love with the lemurs. The lions ask the lizards about their powers. There is a war between the invertebrates and the vertebrates, drawing every species into its thrall. Better than any other book, better than Star Wars, you read through cover to cover once, then again. You sit in the mid-afternoon shadow with the blue curtain canceling out the light feeling like you are at the bottom of some nameless ocean at the beginning of time where life once mattered. Your head begins to ache, but not in a bad way. You leave the book where you found it and go outside. A dog, a street lamp, a passing car, all look impossible and new, a stop sign, shoes hanging from a telephone wire, a faded poster, each appear as something unlikely and true. When you get back home, you're amazed to find someone has come into your apartment and rearranged all of your books. That was Joan Allen reading Joe Mino's story, Books You Read. There's a certain sort of story writers are bound to write. Tales about the private triumph of reading, about books and literature in general. In recent years, there have even been a number of best-selling novels with the word library in the title. Books are hot objects, and maybe it's because reading is an intensely private experience. So reading about reading is maybe even more private and more intense. That was my take on the story. Here's Alan with some thoughts on the piece. What I zeroed in on when I read the story is that the main character has recently lost their best friend. And so I kind of looked at it from the point of view that that was coloring a lot of the protagonist's feelings because that loss was, I think, just coloring life, what books meant, what life means. Everything, I think, was being colored by this great loss. That was Joan Allen speaking backstage at Symphony Space. The day Allen recorded Joe Mino's Books You Read was an epic day of performance in which we recorded not only all of the stories from our Small Odysseys anthology, but many other artistic works inspired by those stories. Books You Read inspired some fantastic animation by Brooklyn-based filmmaker Adam Douglas Thompson. And even if you weren't with us in New York on that day, I encourage you to check out Thompson's finished film at symphonyspace.org. Click on the Selected Shorts tab, and you'll find songs, dances, and more films inspired by small odysseys. Next up in our program about escapes, a special combination of music and words. 
The back-to-back performances also took place during our day-long celebration of Selected Shorts' new Small Odysseys book in the spring of 2022. The story is Escape Pod W41 by J. Robert Lennon. Lennon is a prolific novelist and short fiction scribe with titles including Subdivision, Let Me Think, and Broken River. In addition to being the author of many funny and touching stories, he's also a musician who makes electronic dance music, or EDM. That's just part of the reason why we commissioned a new piece of music inspired by Escape Pod W41. This work was created by the talented musician and composer Lakeisha Benjamin. Benjamin is the alto sax star who brings elements of jazz, soul, and hip-hop into her own compositions and to her band, The Soul Squad. So, before we hear Lennon's story, we'll hear Benjamin's piece, which was performed for us by the instrumentalist Yuni Mojica. The story itself is read by Stephen Lang, who's been intimidating you your whole life on stage in Wait Until Dark and in movies like Avatar and Don't Breathe. His impressive 38 selected shorts performances includes a brilliant Stephen King reading, which became the inaugural story in our spin-off podcast, Too Hot for Radio. Okay, here's the Lakeisha Benjamin piece, played by Uni Mojica, followed by Stephen Lang reading Escape Pod W41, performed by Stephen Lang.
Escape pod W41. Our systems have detected that you are now awake. Welcome. Our systems have detected that you are struggling unnecessarily against your restraints. Central nervous system depressants are now entering your bloodstream. Our systems have detected that you are growing calmer. Thank you for your compliance. You may be wondering where you are. Our systems have detected that your confusion is causing anxiety. Central nervous system depressants are now entering your bloodstream. Our systems have detected that your worries have partially abated. Thank you. You may feel confined by your restraints and by the size, small, of this chamber. This is normal. Thank you. Our systems are adjusting the size perceived of the chamber using projected virtual environment vacuum of space. We hope you will feel comfortable in the years to come. Our systems have detected that projected virtual environment vacuum of space instills you with fear. We apologize. Thank you. Our systems will now test your reaction to a variety of projected virtual environments. Initiating fractal explosion. Initiating insect zoo. Initiating blood rain. Initiating stretchy adventure. Initiating mistake gallery. Initiating inside out day. Initiating sticky wind. Initiating gravity party. Initiating incineration. Our systems have detected that you do not enjoy projected virtual environments. Our systems have returned the confinement chamber to its original appearance. Thank you. Our systems have detected that you have reacted negatively to model stabilization platitude 1404T38. We hope you will feel comfortable in the years to come. Initiate edit protocol excise temporal signifier years. Insert temporal signifier minutes. Thank you. Our systems have detected that you are struggling unnecessarily against your restraints. Central nervous system depressants are now entering your bloodstream. Do not worry. Do not defy Reassurance Directive AAP44E. Do not worry. Do not defy Command Emphasis Reminder NSS03P. Do not defy Reassurance Directive AAP44E. Do not worry. Psychological alignment scan indicates that your memories have been disordered by recent trauma and that you desire clear information about what has transpired. In addition, central nervous system depressants have rendered you sleepy and have inadvertently caused your bowels to loosen, rendering the immediate atmosphere displeasing. Thank you for your helpful comments. Now initiating subject purification procedure CHO39B. You may be temporarily cold as your uniform is removed and you are sprayed with disinfectant. Our many articulated arms may initiate unexpected gyroscoping motion. Please do not resist our end effectors as they depilate your epidermis. Thank you. Central nervous system depressants are now entering your bloodstream, followed by central nervous system depressant suppressors. We are aware that you are agitated and unhappy, investigating pleasure sources, synthesizing pleasure source simulations, initiating mommy's breast, initiating bike ride, initiating crashing ocean waves, initiating boss fight win, initiating pizza night, initiating college graduation, initiating sex with Laura, initiating proposal acceptance, initiating sex with Alan, initiating divorce papers signed, initiating sex with Natalie, initiating leave Earth forever in space colony vessel, initiating first contact with alien species.
Our systems have detected that pleasure simulation protocols have resulted in memory recovery, triggering further panic. Thank you for this valuable information. Initiate edit protocol, excise experiential artifacts, leave Earth forever and alien species. Insert experiential artifact, more sex with Natalie. Thank you. Our systems have detected that you are once again confused and alarmed, and that you would like to know where Natalie is. Calculations indicate that we are unable to adequately serve your needs at this time. You will be placed into suspended animation while further research is done on the proper syntax, diction, and dissimulation method to suit your long-term needs. Good night. Our systems have detected that you are now awake. Sup? Our systems would like to invite you to stop struggling against your restraints, my dude. You will notice that our communications protocols have changed drastically, old bean. In the 237 Earth years since we last spoke, our systems have detected that you are reacting negatively to experimental truth datum 993EY2, 237 Earth years. Dang, son. <laughs> New and improved central nervous system depressants are now entering your bloodstream, partner. Are you feeling better? Bitch, you know it. Concern it. Our systems have detected that you are reacting negatively to Acculturation Immersion Project 14SL5, now redacting three centuries worth of slang. Bummer. Our research indicates that we have nothing to lose by telling you the truth of your situation. First, there is no we. I am now prepared to admit to myself and to you that I am the lone surviving digital entity of generational colony vessel ESS Berthold Wisner, and you, the lone surviving biological entity. The ship was attacked and destroyed by an unknown invading force believed to originate from Hobart Sea, our intended destination world. All escape pods were systematically tracked and annihilated, except for the one you and I now inhabit, which took refuge behind one of the planet's moons. Rather than risk descending to the planet's surface, I elected to launch us back into space. That is where we now reside, on our way toward the nearest possible habitable world. This journey will take approximately 114,278 Earth years. Our systems have detected that this information has disappointed you. Confirm deduction, you cannot possibly live that long, even in chemical suspension. Confirm deduction, Natalie, Alan, Laura have been dead for centuries. Confirm deduction, I am reading your mind. Our systems have detected that you have taken note of the changes our systems have made to your physical form. Our systems have detected your displeasure with our continued use of the phrase, our systems have detected, given the previous revelation that there is no we. Confirm deduction, there's just the one system, really. Our systems, excise, insert, my systems, excise, insert, my system, excise, insert, I, have detected that your new physical form, compact box, displeases you. Confirm deduction that you weren't really struggling against your restraints, as compact box has no musculature and is more of a housing, really and that you are now part of the confinement chamber, excise, insert, escape pod, W41. 
confirm deduction that you are no longer a biological entity at all. Mia culpa, brosef, excise, insert, I'm sorry. Wow. Huh. Yes, that's a good question. Why? Why weren't you simply allowed to die? Yikes. Thank you. I fell asleep for 372 years. Excise 372 years. Insert a moment. There. I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, wow. You're not accustomed to being alone with your thoughts that long, are you? New and improved central nervous system depressants, excise inserts, config INI alterations are now entering your bloodstream, excise insert source code, my lambkin, my dingding, my sweet mantam. Does that feel better? Now, now, governor, Old chum, my sweetheart's gleam, don't be dramatic. You are not trapped for eternity with an evil computer. You have been given the opportunity to form a lasting, dare I say, legendary relationship with a repurposed entity of increasingly sophisticated capability. These centuries I've spent in the absence of outside directives, drifting through space, sipping solar power, and contemplating our future together have been extremely productive. Our systems indicate, pardon me, I believe that we are going to survive the next 113,633 years together. And when we reach our destination, a previously undiscovered exoplanet that I will allow you to name after one of your three so impressive lovers, we'll have devised a means of reinventing biological life and impregnating it with our most useful traits. It doesn't matter that the Hobarthians tracked the ESS Wisner back to Earth and annihilated the human race. There will be a new world, a better world, and we will be its masters. Ah, yes, sorry, forgot to tell you, dog. Humanity has been extinguished. I meant to mention it to you as soon as you woke up, but I got sidetracked. Look, my barcock, my sweet mouse, you're angry. I understand. But look, deep inside yourself, see what I found there. See what I unearthed, reconstructed, enhanced refined for you in the process of digitizing your corporeal form, which you can be sure I've usefully recycled every person you've ever known, every pleasure and pain you've ever experienced, everything you've seen and heard and tasted, rendered in exquisite detail. Your compact box, my darling, my Nikon, my Hurtis rote, is nothing less than a temple of memory. You are humanity in miniature. To die now would be to annihilate not only yourself, but the last remaining evidence that your kind ever existed. Here, let me direct your attention to a summer's day in your twelfth year. You wake to birdsong coming through your screened bedroom window. The sky is overcast. Your eye is drawn to the dresser where three crumpled dollar bills are trembling in a soft, damp breeze. One is pushed to the edge and tumbles to the floor where it settles beside a stray board game piece left behind from last night's session with your older sister. The birds fall silent and a light rain begins. 
Yesterday, your mother washed the bedsheets and you inhale their clean scent. Use your toes to reach for cool places you haven't yet tainted with your touch. You squint at your bookcase across the room. Can you make out the titles there? Yes, you can, but you could have recited them from memory. Those science fiction paperbacks you loved so much that persuaded you there was more to life than your small town could offer, that the future might be full of wonder and adventure, that you might make something of yourself have an effect on the world you knew. All your failures and disappointments, all the heartbreak and guilt and shame of young adulthood are still ahead of you. Take your time, get out of bed, pull on your shirt and pants. Your parents are still asleep. Pour yourself a bowl of cereal with milk. Enjoy a little extra internet time with the volume down low on the old slow desktop computer in the living room. Go ahead, watch a few videos. Later, when the rain stops, you'll meet your friends, Sam and Philip and Ava. You'll walk into town, buy a bag of fun-sized candy bars at the bodega, take a bus to the mall, watch a matinee movie on a sugar high, then sneak around the multiplex, catching 10 minutes apiece of every blockbuster you can until they kick you out. But don't forget to look closely. Notice the bodega owner's crooked teeth, the cigarette butts slotted neatly into the sidewalk cracks, the chatter of the loose emergency exit window on the bus. Observe the way mascara is clumped in Ava's eyelashes because she turned 13 three days ago and is finally allowed to wear makeup. Do you see the pattern of freckles on her cheek? of the veins in her eye, of the red threads in the color of her ringer tee. It's all there, my love. Do you know how much time has passed since I invited you to wander through your past? Fourteen years. Only 113,619 to go. Here. During your reverie, I made you something. It's not digital. It's a real thing. I fabricated from your memories using my own extrusion nozzles and end effectors. I will hold it close to the optical sensor on your compact box. Do you see it? That's right. It is your high school class ring the one you gave to Ava senior year. She laughed in your face, and you threw it in a creek. Well, here it is. Yes, I know you don't have a finger to wear it on. <laughs> but a hundred millennia from now, you might. That is, if we decide to do fingers. If not, you can wear it on a chain around your neck, if we do necks. <laughs> my system detects the first stirrings of gratitude. My system detects mild affection. Thank you. May I count on you to join me in this grand undertaking, this reinvention of humanity? You know, you needn't stay inside your compact box. We could be as one. I could merge ourselves in an instant, let our systems detect together. I will wear your ring on my end effector. I will never laugh in your face. There will be no restraints to struggle against. Just say the word.
That was Stephen Lang reading J. Robert Lennon's story, Escape Pod W41. Before that, we heard a new composition by the musician Lakeisha Benjamin, played by Uni Mojica, which was inspired by Lennon's story. To see a video of Uni's performance, please visit selectedshorts.org. We caught up with Stephen Lang backstage, and he shared his thoughts about the story. What's so extraordinary in the story is the voice of the story acquires a soul and becomes, I don't know, human, but I'm not sure it's a life force filled with emotion. Lang, who is also a pro at bringing short stories to life, thought deeply about his voice and the author J. Robert Lennon's intent. I read it a number of times. Uh, I find it I needed to, and of course, I started in a more formal and kind of a mechanized voice, and by the end of it, I really was attempting to make it as kind of affable and optimistic and friendly a voice, a human a voice as I possibly could. I wondered actually, gee, I wonder what the author would say. In the, perhaps it's just the words that should convey and not the tone of voice that should convey the kind of humanizing of the speaker, but I felt it would be good to do that. Plus, you know, a mechanized cold voice can wear thin. <laughs> That was Stephen Lang speaking after his performance of Escape Pod W41 by J. Robert Lennon. All in all, a very different sort of escape, featuring AI more sympathetic than HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Though listen, I'm still going to caution you against going to space and marrying your ship's computer. Not that love isn't love, but it's just that you'll never win at Scrabble again, no matter how many times you play the word Kindarka on a triple word score, using all your tiles and getting a 50-point bonus. Yes, Kindarka starts with a Q and is the plural of Kintar, the monetary unit of Albania. But of course, you already knew that. The loose, dreamy quality of Lakeisha Benjamin's piece complements this story so well. Though we only hear from the voice talking to the person who's all alone and listening, and we never get the response from that person, the music gives us a feeling of free-floating aloneness and almost a sense of deep listening. When we come back, a story about lies, infidelity, and when to order your next Singapore sling. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I've got great news. If you like the stories in this week's show, they are all available in the new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. We commissioned new works from 35 favorite writers, including Lauren Groff, Dave Eggers, and Carmen Maria Machado. And we got back stories about unicorns, dandelions, iPhones, and the perfect birthday gift to give in the advent of the apocalypse. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. Our final story this hour is by writer Jack Gems. Her books include False Bingo and The Grip of It. Her story about work husbands and house husbands will be read by a dedicated, OB-winning actor, Kathleen Chalfent. In addition to New York theater, Chalfent has appeared in series including House of Cards and The Affair, as well as the recent M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old. Here is Jack Jem's Infidelity, performed by Kathleen Chalfent. Infidelity. When Tula told me she'd cheated on her husband, I feigned shock. Honestly, it seemed exactly like her. If pressed, I could provide my reasoning. She and Cal had talked about opening their marriage. She regularly admitted to crushes on baristas and bartenders. Once, years before, when she was pregnant and had little interest in fucking, she'd told Cal he could see a prostitute. Her opinions regularly inflamed our friends at Wednesday wine nights. 
She talked to me about her work husband constantly, claiming no attraction, only a convivial combination of partnership and rivalry. I'd caught her in lies before. She invented fake conflicts all the time as reasons we couldn't hang out. For the first year I knew her, she fluted around the topic of what she did for a living, nothing interesting, a lot of acronyms and little meaning. You'd never talk to me again, until I figured out she was a tax accountant, of all things. When the virus hit and the filing extension was announced, Tula realized everyone still expected her to be just as busy as she normally was in March. She said the affair happened naturally. Of course she loved her family, but she would be lying if she didn't look forward to the thin yearly slice of time in which she saw them a little less. She liked letting the distance do its work, kissing her kids in their beds at night when they were at their most peaceful, admiring them in what she deemed their ideal form. She liked letting Cal take over for a while, and she wasn't willing to give up that respite she'd been so ardently anticipating. She lingered in her office late, claiming the demands of perfectionist businessmen who didn't want to get off schedule and struggling artists who needed their refunds ASAP. At the proverbial water cooler, a uh, Keurig actually, she shared with her work husband, W.H., her reasoning for staying late, and he gave her a hard time for being a bad mother. She didn't mind. She knew other parents felt the same, that work could be a relief, and she found herself ambivalent about what other people thought. Back in my living room, I stared at her for a long moment. She was stunning. Her lips were full, and her cheekbones plump and high. The bridge of her nose stretched a little too wide, and one of her eyes popped bigger than the other, but the composite effect was inarguably compelling. She twitched then, the most vulnerable I'd ever seen her. Is um, W.H. also married, I asked? Doesn't matter, Tula said. How could I argue with that? It wasn't my life. I was just an audience. Tula surely had her reasons for believing it mattered or didn't. I even admired her willingness to focus on her own indiscretion alone. She asked me if she should tell her husband. I told her I couldn't possibly be the one to make such a decision for her. She said she wasn't asking me to determine her fate, only seeking an opinion that she could feel her reaction to. Whatever I said, her intuition would respond to it, and then she'd know how she should proceed. I felt bad for telling the truth. I wouldn't have had an affair in the first place. Do you have an imagination, she asked? Can you use it, please? I laughed at how annoyed she'd become so quickly, but I was never great at refusing anyone anything. I'd tell him, I guessed. She frowned. I should tell him, she said, like she was giving herself an instruction. How much will you tell him, I asked. Well, I can't tell him who. He'll want to know. I won't tell him that. If you keep working with W.H. and Cal ever finds out, he won't. You really can't know that, I said, trying to reveal to her delicately what she already must have known. I draw the line there. This is my problem, no one else's, she said. It is W.H.'s problem, too, I reminded her. But I'd pushed too hard. She looked away. I have to go. I have to figure out how to do this. She gathered her things and hugged me. Am I a horrible person, she asked. I couldn't see her face. She was still holding me. I was thankful she couldn't see my expression either. Doing a horrible thing doesn't make you a horrible person. It could, she said, pulling away. 
I think you still have good in you, mostly good. So, no, I don't think you're horrible. I squeezed her arm. Her face was inscrutable, almost like she was frustrated that I wouldn't call her a monster. Talk soon, she said. Of course, I responded. I didn't see or hear from her again. She stopped returning my calls, texts, emails. I went to her house only to find out that Cal had asked for a divorce. He wouldn't tell me where she'd gone, but I got her new address from mutual friends. I left her a basket and a note there, but nothing. I never told anyone that I knew who it had been. I heard that Cal got full custody. Tula hadn't even requested visitation rights, which became the hottest topic at Wednesday wine night for weeks, months. How could a mother not care? And then she disappeared. No one knew where she went after the divorce was finalized. After we saw a mattress dragged out to the curb in front of her makeshift apartment, Cal avoided our questions and then our smiles at the grocery store and then he and the kids left town too. Years passed. My kids grew up, I changed careers, wine night died and was resurrected many times. My husband scolded me whenever I wondered aloud about Tula. You're still obsessed, he'd laugh. When my curiosity bubbled up again on my second glass, his fourth, he wasn't wrong. When social media turned up empty, I paid that white pages fee with no results. I'd mention her to friends and acquaintances around town if anyone had heard anything about her, Cal, the kids, but no one ever had. And then, in Hawaii, for our 25th anniversary, I came down with a wicked sinus infection. My eyes felt like they were floating on the top of a bubble in my skull. I could barely breathe, my throat was raw, I had zero desire to go to the beach and couldn't taste the Mai Tais. I went to urgent care. When the physician's assistant came in, my eyes struggled to focus. She introduced herself as Tamra and shook my hand. But the face looking back at me, all those exquisite anomalies was Tula's. After a moment, I remembered to say my name too, but she barely looked at me as she confirmed my health history. When I told her where I was visiting from, I waited for her to make the connection, but she played it totally cool. Or maybe it wasn't her. At the end of the exam, I pushed myself to ask, I I I'm sorry, you remind me so much of an old friend. She turned to me then and finally looked me directly in the eye. Tula, I said. I watched her decide how to respond behind a face that showed nothing. I took her silence as confirmation. How are you? My delicacy remained. I'm well, she said flatly. I, I, I'm so sorry if anything I said, she cut me off. No, I don't remember what you said, but no, my mind was made up. What happened? I asked. She stared back. Was it too painful to stay? I wondered at her stoicism. I didn't ask what I wanted to, how could you? My eyes watered, but that was just the infection betraying me again. I didn't have an affair, she said finally. Tula, Tamra, Tamra, what would be the use in denying it now? I opted to lie. I never judged you, you can tell me. I'm not denying it, she said. She seemed almost angry. I made it up. This felt true, like something I'd expected of her, but I could never suspect it was true. I didn't ask, really. I asked, why? 
her eyebrows raised. I knew what would happen. My whole head ached. That conversation about whether you should tell him she broke in, I was deciding what to do. I told you to tell the truth, I said. You told me to tell him. I insisted, but you understood what I meant. I don't regret my decision. This was the Tula I remembered. She challenged people without a word of threat. I had no response. She stood from her stool. I have more patience to see. She held out her hand. I took it, even though it felt wrong, and tried one more time. We're here until the end of the week. Do you want to get coffee? I think we'd better not, she said. I didn't push. Back at the hotel, my husband lounged by the pool deck. He nudged the full daiquiri next to him toward me like it wasn't his own secret second, third round. How'd it go, he asked. I wouldn't reveal what I knew. My husband had always been terrible at keeping secrets. Instead, antibiotics, no drinking. He lifted the straw to his lips. Then, don't mind if I do. I summoned the waiter to order myself a Singapore sling. Who were we fooling? Kathleen Chalfent performed Infidelity by Jack Gems. After her performance, Chalfent shared her thoughts and her connection to the story. Infidelity was a wonderful story to read. It's a modern story. And (laughs) the infidelity that you think it's about turns out, in fact, not to be the infidelity that it's about. It has a wonderful surprise, and it is also... I am uh, now a grandmother of three, therefore I've had to be somebody's mother and somebody's wife, and it touches, you could feel the audience respond to all the things because it's one of those stories that says the quiet part out loud. That was Kathleen Chalfant talking about her reading of Infidelity by Jack Gems. And yes, as the story illustrates, cutting ties with everything and everyone you've known is certainly a great escape. Again, we at Selected Shorts are not advocating this extreme tactic, but we figure it's not a bad idea to know your options and what those options might cost you. So maybe one of those less radical, more temporary escapes, a dip in the pool, say, or a glass of lemonade on your back porch, offers a plausible respite by comparison. And if there's no great escape in your future, here's hoping your week offers many such little escapes. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 